Hey, Islanders, and welcome to episode 63 of the Camino Voice. On this episode, I speak to the owners of Cat's Paws Bees Honey. Please welcome Andy and Bonnie Swanson. Hi, I'm Brandon Erickson, and you're listening to the Camino Voice podcast, where I interview folks around Camino Island and beyond. If you want to stay up to date on events, businesses, and even hear a little history of this area, Subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends. Thanks for listening. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode of the Camino Voice, where we release a new episode every Tuesday. And before we get into the summary of this episode and and the preview, um, I want to say a quick thank you to everybody who's joined in and listened to the podcast. Um, We're on episode 63, so it totally blew past the milestone of of a year and, and 52 episodes. Um, but I want to say thank you. Um, I've really enjoyed this podcast over the last year. Um, and I gave myself a year to test it out and see if I wanted to continue doing it or not. (laughs) Um, but, uh, you guys have, um, the people I've heard from that have listened to the podcast, um, have been very uh, positive and encouraging. And so I'm, I'm very excited to continue it, um, for the next year and see where that takes me. Um, but yeah, we made it to a year, 63 episodes. We're actually a little past that, but you know, a little better late than never. Um, so anyways, I just want to say thank you guys. And if you haven't already, um, please share with your friends and family, uh, that are in or around the San Camino area. Um, I'm still trying to get the growth of the podcast going. And so, um, I actually have a, a pretty good listener base, but I'd like to see it grow over the next year. Um, I'm going to try and do a little bit better uh, getting the word out myself as well, but I can use your guys' help too. So um, tell a friend or family about it. And uh, yeah, so this episode is actually going to be with uh, Bonnie and Andy Swanson, who are the owners of Cat's Paws Bees Bees Honey. Um, And so we get into all things bees, obviously, um, but we also get into kind of their history, where they started. And, um, you know, most of you might remember that I interviewed uh, Jennifer earlier, who is the owner of Camino Island Honey. So um, it's very interesting. I get to hear multiple perspectives of the bee industry um, and how each each uh, each company kind of works with their bees in a different way. Um, So if you haven't listened to that episode, be sure to go back and listen to that one as well. Um, That was a fascinating episode as well, um, and this one is equally so. So um, I did break this into two parts because the first part and this this ended up being a very long episode. Um, So anyways, uh, be sure to check out both parts. The next part will be released next week. Um, And without further ado, here's my conversation with Andy and Bonnie Swanson. Hey, Islanders, and welcome to another episode. Uh, Today I have here the owners of Cat's Paws Honey. Welcome to the podcast, Bonnie and Andy. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah. So before we get started, tell us a little bit. Bleh. Tell us a little bit about Bonnie and Andy. Um, let's see. Andy, I'll start. Um, I've always been interested in bees. Um, I was fascinated when I saw. I probably saw bees uh, the first time in a swarm when I was about eight or ten years old. Okay. And it was absolutely fascinating. Um, didn't get involved with bees until much later on in life, but um, collected insects when I was in 4-H, uh, did uh, entomology and stuff. So it's been kind of a lifelong passion to, to want to do bees, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially when you, it's not something I want to do for a living per se, but I certainly, you know, wanted to do bees. So yeah. as far as that goes. 
So I got into bees because Andy got into bees. Um, I did. We both are from California originally. I'm from okay. Bakersfield, California. Andy was born in Sacramento but grew up in Fresno. And then I graduated from Fresno State and moved up to Fresno. Um, my first husband and I had a farm in Fresno and had probably everything but bees. Okay. Um, I lost him to leukemia, and that's kind of why we ended up here. But um, like I said, we had everything but bees, never even considered bees. Okay. And then when Andy and I came up here, he's like, well, that's kind of the only animal I really like. I had no idea, for example, he doesn't <laughs> like cows and horses. Uh, those Pigs, they, chickens, <laughs> all that. I mean, she's had everything. Goats. Yeah, I don't want any of that stuff. I mean, you know, oh, my goodness. So that's, uh, so that's kind of the common interest. Yeah. Um, for me, it was organic farming back in, in the late 70s, early 80s. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And make no mistake, beekeeping is farming. And just in case anybody doesn't realize, you're just, you're farming uh, wooden boxes. You know, yes. you, don't have, you don't have acreage and things like that. You know, you're just a squatter with boxes, but you're still a <laughs> farmer nevertheless. <laughs> Very cool. So you guys, you said you both started in California. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So... Andy, you grew up, where did you grow up again? Uh, Fresno, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I moved to Fresno when, when I was five years old. And so, you know, all of the time that I grew up was always around Fresno and Clovis. And Fresno is a farming community. Okay. Uh, as much as uh, it's become a really large town and it has all of the large town problems and everything else, its base economy is farming. And they grow a lot of um, grapes and raisins and figs and almonds. And, you know, there's just a lot of farming stuff. And as soon as you bounce right out of Fresno into the surrounding areas, you'll see lots of farming, lots of trees, lots of things that was all agricultural things. So, you know, yeah. So. Got it. And then. I I was in Bakersfield, which is just a couple hours south, but still the San Joaquin Valley all um, between, so we were basically between Los Angeles and San Francisco, lots and lots of agriculture. Um, I didn't really grow up so much around agriculture till after I got married. Um, My parents were, my dad was a policeman, my mother was an accountant, you know, very, you know, just standard middle class, nowhere near, you know. (laughs) Didn't even look at the ingredients on the box. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, starting out, so. Okay, so, and then, Andy, did you end up going to a university or anything after high school? Uh, you know, what happened to me was uh, I went ahead and went to a City College, and I had a really bad car accident when I was in my early you know, uh, 20, 21 year of age. And after that, that was very life-altering. It changed the course of my life. Um, I had 32 stitches across my face. I ate a windshield. And uh, I quit going to college and started chasing dreams. Uh, I just, it was one of those, it's sometimes when you go through life, when you have your life flash in front of you, you suddenly realize that you might be wasting time doing one thing and you need to be chasing other things. Mm -hmm. So I chased um, a tropical fish farm. I chased a bonsai nursery, did bonsai for 25 years enjoyed that quite a bit. So there was a lot of things that I chased down and did. I became a carpenter. I became a welder. Um, My first wife and I had ICF DDH facilities and six bed facilities, and we took care of mentally disabled clients. And I also had a elderly facility. Um, So I've, I've had a very large, diverse life as far as all of those things. But when I was a young man, yeah, that the course of changing my life was over through that uh, bad car accident, actually. So, so were you? What were you studying in college? 
before that happened? Uh, I wanted to be, um, I wanted to do real estate um, and I wanted to be an accountant. And the hardest thing that I had to come to realize was that even though I knew math really well, and I really liked math, mm -hmm. accounting has nothing to do with math. <laughs> it actually has to do with bouncing things from one column to another column and moving things around accordingly. And I actually figured out that I couldn't do it. it the concept of moving things around with you know balance sheets and all the other stuff, yep. I, I just absolutely hated it. And I, I failed it when I first walked in and did six weeks of it. I was totally lost. I went back in the next... <laughs> semester and did it again and I flunked it just about the same amount of time and it was like what's wrong you know I, I mean I'm, I do math really well yeah. and the teacher just laughed and he said well you know this is this is what college is for to teach you what you do want to do and what you don't want to do right so anyway but after the car accident that really rearranged a lot of things for me and I had to I had to relook at my life to say the least so anyway yeah. I'm gonna say his defining moment was a car accident mine was being the middle daughter of three girls, um, okay. six years between all of us. So there was 12 years between my younger sister and my older sister. And my dad decided there was not going to be any more children in the family. And old school as he was, and as probably a little sexist as he was, he just looked around and said, well, I'm not going to have a son, but tag you're it. So unfortunately for my sisters, I learned how to vacuum the pole, mow the lawn, fix the car, get up on the roof and do the swamp cool. I mean, I just went, he took me deep sea fishing. He did a lot of stuff with me. So um, I graduated early from high school and college. So I was 19 when I graduated college. Wow. And I thought I was going to be a psychologist and save the world because at the time I looked around and said, there's so many unhappy people. And then I really started further in it and realized, wow, I really need to understand what people do for a living first. I mean, I, I've never really lived. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want a standard job, so I took the postal carrier test, and the phone company was having a pole climbing course um, through the uh, city college. Okay. And at the time, I didn't realize the federal government had told the phone company that there will be male operators and there will be women installers and linemen. Okay. So like 150 of us showed up at an auditorium, and then the next Friday, Wednesday evening, actually, there were only 80 of us left, and it was all women. Needless to say, by the time I was done with the program, six of us graduated. They offered me a job the next day, and I started as an installer for the phone company. Okay. And I, that career never ended. I spent 35 years in telecommunications. Okay. Yeah. And so and I got to start at the ground floor. When this was before, this was right as touchtone phones were coming into being. Okay, which were rotary dial phones yes, back okay. in the seventies. Yep. You and wouldn't know what that looked like, Brandon. Don't worry, you're too <laughs> they young. They had pay okay. phones. <laughs> yes, yes. And so I would go out. The PUC in California had mandated that every farmer that didn't want to have to have a party line anymore could have a private line. Mm -hmm. um, so that was my first gig: was going out and rewiring farmers phones to be a private line and stringing the drop from the pole and getting on the bird wire. So I loved, loved, loved the job. And I was very fortunate because I was able to start a career um, with equal pay, equal opportunity, and continue on through. So um, that kept me outdoors for many, many years, um, went into management later on, and then eventually went into large PBX phone systems for Microsofts and Boeings and things like that. Okay. So that's kind of so how So was I it your 
focus was mainly on like the landline side of telecommunications? It, you always, back in the day, there was a hierarchy, right? You started mm -hmm. as a residential installer, then you went to repair, then you went to basic business, then you went to complex businesses. It was just how you kind of work through the system yeah. with seniority. Um, I was there during the breakup, Ma Bell breakup, and uh, chose, I wasn't able to go to AT&T because I didn't have enough seniority, and everybody thought Pacific Telephone was going to die and AT&T was going to be the place to go. Okay. And actually, looking back, it probably worked out really well for me mm -hmm. um, because it was a better, it turned out to be a better opportunity. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. So did you guys work, like, as far as what's going on with, uh, say, like, the 5G, that's, all, I know that's more network side, mm -hmm. but the baseline is the same, right? It's still wires and stuff like that of, like... Yes. Yeah, so I ended up eventually moving. That's what got us up here to Washington. Oh, okay. Okay, so my, my, my husband passed away, and I had two teenagers, a farm, and I worked, like, 60 hours a week for the phone company. So that was, I couldn't manage the farm that. anymore. Yeah. yeah. So I went to my company and they were in the middle of changing GTE and Ver they had merged. It was Verizon. Okay. And this is about 2003 ish, four ish. And, um, there was a lot of changes on the horizon. So being in Fresno and the group that I managed was kind of small. And so I recognized they were kind of probably going to leave that market and go to a bigger market. So I asked for a transfer and they gave us, uh, a few choices, um, Los Angeles, which seemed a lot like Bakersfield, Fresno, um, Baskin Ridge, New Jersey, Dallas, Texas, and Everett, Washington. Okay. And I ended up in Everett, Washington, and that's how we moved here. Got it. So. Okay. Yeah. And that yeah. was with, what were you That was with? with Verizon. And so okay. then I left Verizon six months before they sold to Frontier because our division at that point wasn't really landline because at that point, the PBXs were going to voice over IP. So 5G is just really wireless, and Verizon is obviously focused more on wireless now than they yeah. were before. Right. And that isn't a part of the industry that I really wanted to go into, um, so I left. Yeah. yeah. Was it just lack of interest, or was it just the way things were moving? Well, really the whole truth. No. Ooh, don't say the truth. No, you're asking the wrong question there. Yeah, really. No, actually, there was a lot going on politically, and I was still, you know, I was obviously not 19 anymore. But um, my my, I at that point I was a second level, and my VP was asking me to do things that I didn't think were morally correct. Okay. In how the people were being dealt with, negotiated because they were trying to sell the frontier, and all of a sudden became obvious, like okay. You're doing things that don't make sense, and you're right. hurting people. And so I just was like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. So, of course, and the big layoff, it was 09 by then, right, okay. when the big layoff came. And so I was laying off um, every Thursday. Pretty much they would come to me and say, you had to pick another 2% of your employees. It's tough. It's tough. That's, tough, yeah. tough. I said, how about me? So, because I just, it became very... Ugh, it was hard. It was hard, yeah. hard, hard. I think the wireless industry is hard in general, even to be a manager. So right. um, we so much depend on it. But Yeah. Uh, well, I think it also has to do with the fact that it's, it's changing so much. Things are getting, you know, there's new technology. There's new things yes. being done. Uh, you know, they try and automate certain things. And then you, you've just got so much that's so dynamic that certain people are going to get 
aged out much quicker than they would in yes. a standard job. Yes. Just because the amount of information and yeah. understanding and everything you need to know. Yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah. Like, it's I, I don't use my skills on wiring a farmer 10-party <laughs> line anymore, right? In my lifetime, that died. It doesn't <laughs> help you doing bees either, does no, it? No, yeah, no, it doesn't. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. So, Andy, you said you, you had uh, quite an extensive career of all the different things. How did you kind of translate, like, how did you move from one to the next then? You, st- you did bonsai trees, you said? Uh, that was as, as a hobby. I tried to do it as a business also. I will tell you that when you, anytime you take a hobby and you try to make it into a business, it's very painful because all the joy that you got out of that hobby, now when it becomes a source of income, it becomes a problem. Okay, and mm-hmm. all the joy usually gets knocked out of things when you start doing that. Okay, <laughs> and that's a harsh lesson to learn in life when you're doing things, right? And um, I think you know, one year I, uh, when I was in, I think I was 27 years old. I had 13 W2s, and that didn't cover all the jobs that I had. So you know, it's both good and bad. There's there's frustrating things in life, but I also learned how to do a lot of things. I, wor- I went through a lot of different construction, lots of different jobs. And it teaches you how to be self-sufficient. It teaches you how to think. It teaches you how to be independent. And you're not so worried about, I never worried about getting another job. And I didn't worry about keeping the job either, okay? <laughs> you know, I mean, it just, it just allows you, you know, I never had the opportunity of, of working for the phone company, but you know, I could go get a job anytime I wanted and I could leave that job anytime and I could get another one and I didn't care, right? Yeah. So, you know, so it, it gives you that ability to be able to do that. When right. you're doing beekeeping or farming in general, you're going to find out that every farmer out there has a lot of different skills. They have to know how to do a lot yeah. of different things. Mm-hmm. They can't afford to go out and hire everything right. that they need done. Right. So they've got to do a lot of things all on their own. So they have to work on their tractor. they got to work on their land. they got to work on their this or their that. They have to know a lot of things. Yeah. When it comes to beekeeping, it's the same thing. You know, you're going to have to know a lot of things. Beekeepers are notorious for being very cheap and very frugal. And it's because usually they're touching thousands and thousands of hives. So if they do something and it costs them 10 cents times 5,000, they're starting to look at it like, oh, my goodness, I don't want to spend that 10 cents on 5,000 hives, right? right? Yeah, right. Especially a couple of dollars per 5,000 hives, right? So they look in those terms constantly all the time. And most farmers do, right? So, you know, it's a completely different mentality. So you figure out how to do the things yourself and make those things yourself and what have you, you know, kind of thing. So I, that's what makes me easily be able to do those things and have my own set of tools and have my own set of circumstance and have lots of ability. And make custom hives. Yeah, make custom hives, make custom things. I make custom furniture and all sorts of stuff. There's all sorts of things I make, you know, and it's because of all of the background that I have. Right. And And it's so very regional. So I had, like I said, in the old ranch at, in California, everything but bees. And I got connected to a country living expo up here. One of the things I got connected to, um, through the livestock advisory program, which is very awesome. In fact, I just got an email. They're just starting a new, um, online class. It's a 10 week course, um, through WSU extension out of Burlington. Okay. Um, and so it's 10 weeks and each week is a different topic, not bees because, they argue with me. This is a livestock foundation, and a, and bees are not livestock, so that's a constant little uh, uh, arm wrestle. But I, they asked me to, they they said they would scholarship me through the class because I think now online it's one hundred twenty five dollars. At the time it was two hundred fifty dollars, but it was 
definitely well worth it, especially if you wanted to know how to build a fence, how to build up your pasture. They'll have a, a section on sheep, on goats, on cattle, chickens, well, all fowl. They, they cover everything. And I thought, oh, yeah, this will be easy because I did all this in California. And yet each class I took on every animal that I had owned and bred and did everything with mm-hmm. was all some cases very different just because of the difference in moisture on a pasture and how cattle break it down and, you know, compared to what I did in California. So excellent, excellent program and kind of got me connected to the agricultural community up here. Got it. Yeah. And just for fairness, when it comes to bees, uh, I did bees down in California for about four years. I've done bees up here for about 12 or 13 years. And it's completely different down in Fresno in central California to do bees than it is up here. Mostly it's I'm trying to get water in the hives in Fresno and in up here, I'm trying to get water out of the hives, okay? But all of those things, it's completely different. And everything that I learned down in California doesn't really help me when I came up here doing bees. So I had to yeah. kind of relearn a lot of things. I mean, chickens so. in Fresno are laying every day, and, and their molting process is easy peasy. Now, we, we had our chickens out on pasture, so they were... I mean, then we were selling eggs to a health food store, and then they were paying us $3 a dozen. Okay. In the 70s, early wow. 70s. Yeah. yeah. But, but it was because they were free range. We were all, you know, organic food. We had a rooster. They were, you know, blah, blah, blah. They were large. And so I get up here, and I'm like, why do you have a chicken tractor? What the heck is that? Why would you confine your chickens? And they're like, well, because they get eaten a lot <laughs> here by every, out of the sky. I'm like, oh, okay, we didn't have that problem. They, when they molt, they look like they're going to die, you know? And you're like, oh, what is that? Um, they, get, you know, they just have different problems than yeah. chickens yeah. do down in Fresno. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So when you did the farming and everything... Um, was there, I don't know if there's like, I don't know if there's named methods for different types of farming. I'm sure mm-hmm. there are, but was mm-hmm. there a specific like, no, no, we or? would be, had been called a homestead. Um, the ironic part is my husband was, um, he had a gold card so that he could apply any kind of pesticide or herbicide in the state of California. And he would often trade labor. He was a big barter. Um, but he learned so much about it, he refused to use anything on our land at all. Okay. So back then it was like, no, I'm not, no, 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 no. Because he had done all the classes and done everything. Yeah. Um, and so we didn't have that much acreage, but we could have, um, we couldn't grow a lot in Fresno. So we had more, you know, square than we did living space. But um, so, no, it was just like a homestead. Um, some of the farms that you see out here. Um, we were fortunate. Uh, we we always had buyers for our beef. We never had to advertise for that. Um, we had one health food store that took every egg we could produce, and then we gave away the produce to all of our friends. So. And one of the other differences is in Fresno, every day is a farm day. You can grow crops 365 days a year. You can okay. grow winter crops, spring crops, summer crops. I mean, there's there's no limit to what you can grow in Fresno. Right. And we weren't up here. It's completely different. And again, know? like yeah. with our beekeeping here, we weren't dependent on that income for a living because I worked for the phone company. Right? Okay. So, but you know, I was able to raise my kids there and gave them a. You know, they they yeah. still have a lot of memories of that. So. Yeah. So, yeah. 
like when you're growing things like that, you don't need to do like greenhouses or things like that? Generally? It's not a question of whether you can do greenhouses or not, but uh, Fresno has, it's one of the reasons why they produce so many almonds. You know, almonds are only grown in, in the Central Valley of California, and it's not grown anywhere else. A little else. place in Europe. Okay. okay. Well, there's a little bit in Spain. There's yeah. a couple of little places here and there, but, but, but 85 majority. to 90% of all almonds in the entire world are grown in that Central valley, valley that's California. 200 uh, miles by mm -hmm. about 600 miles. Okay. Yeah, that's where all the almonds are grown. Now, now the almond crops are so large and worth so much money that they've actually migrated into Sacramento and north. But for, for most of the time, it was Fresno mm -hmm. County and a little bit in, uh, down into Bakersfield and Kern County where all of the almonds originally were grown. Okay. And Australia right now is trying really hard. They've had major fires, and they've come up already. They're only in, like, fifth-year production. They don't have enough bees. Well, you need to have irrigated water, yeah. mm -hmm. the right type of um, soil structure with the right temperatures and everything else, and you need to have bees, right? Yeah. And so when, you're, when it comes down to it, uh, the central California, it has the right soil, it has the right temperatures of everything, and it has bees. And they have to truck a lot of bees inside there to be able to make all of the bees happen that okay. they need, right? And their issue right now yeah. is, is water and bees. Those are the two things the, that are the becoming The biggest issue expensive. about farming when it comes to it, the almond farmers are not subsidized by the federal government at all. They have been, they have, when you look at a, a farmer that's been doing almonds and he's done it for the last 50 years, mm -hmm. he's made money every year, every year, okay? Wow. No piece of farming can ever say that. No. To not have, mm -hmm. no, to not have any subsidies whatsoever and right. be able to make, you know, you can buy your new Cadillac every year by being an almond farmer. And we've, we, I know plenty of people that are into farming and they've made fortunes inside of almonds because, there is the, because the demand is so strong. The issue with that is, is that they never keep a crop from one year to the next. Whatever they've grown, if they don't sell it inside of the United States, China will pick up as much loose almond as you can ever imagine and pay the price thereof. Okay, wow. including the tariffs mm -hmm. and everything else. Mm -hmm. So they never, ever have a crop that they hang on to. It's there. yeah. So it it, you know, every year, it, no matter how much they produce, they sell. And mm -hmm. there have been some years where they looked at it like, oh, my goodness, we've we've produced double or triple the amount we've ever done. Are we going to be able to sell this? Lo and behold, they do. Right. And at very high prices. At yeah, very, very high crazy. prices. But the yeah. demand for honeybees is starting to outstrip the availability of honeybees. And that's right. why they're trying to, you know, bring bees in from Mexico, South America. But because of, you know... Currently, right now, the, most of the time when they're looking at renting bees, they will pay between, say, a low of 125 to as high as $200 per box of bees. And they're usually only keeping them for about six weeks for that almond crop. Okay. As soon as you get out of that almond crop and you would, you would migrate to, say, apples, they're only going to pay you $35 a box okay. to rent that, mm -hmm. that box. And, of course, they're only going to rent that box for four or five days, maybe, a, uh, maybe 10 days total. But it doesn't matter. The almond farmers are paying the beekeepers their entire living. Most of the beekeepers make between 75 to 95% of all monies they ever make 
are coming out of the almond farmers' pockets okay. into theirs, mm-hmm. and they are the ones that are paying for everything. For right? what when it comes call, to for, yeah, for beekeeping, for what we call commercial beekeepers, yeah. and even yeah. some of the sideliners, up to five hundred hives, you're considered. You yeah. know, there's hobby, novice, sideliner, and commercial, and um, even the sideliners will group together and get a couple. There's about right. five hundred hives to a rig okay. to truck And down. even though I come from that area where I knew a lot of the beekeepers mm-hmm. and all the, a lot of the farmers and stuff, we don't rent our bees to farmers. We don't we don't send them down to California. We don't we don't ship them off to other places mm-hmm. and stuff, right. right? So that's part of a business that we don't do. But when it comes to just beekeeping in general, virtually all of the beekeepers have to one way or the other get yeah. their bees into almonds to make their paycheck. If, if they're right? making so. a living off of it and their family is depending on it, it's it's switched. Um, honey coming from out of the country is so, so cheap that they can't, it's hard to compete with that unless they're a boutique honey like us. And yeah. you know, we only have so much, we're only gonna sell so much, you know, and again, we don't have to make a living at it. And so it's become a real catch 22 for them because it's been a machine that they've been on. Right. And they gotta get them down there and they have to be eight frame or better out of a, you know, yeah. 10 to, get, to get really good money. January, if you want to go after that $200 a box in, thing, then you're going to have to have eight in, frame or better. In January, when our bees are in winter cluster. So wait, um, pause there for a sec. What does eight frame or better mean? Because I don't, I don't understand mm-hmm. the terminology. Right. Uh, what that means is, is that uh, a, a, standard box, box. a standard box uh, of bees is uh, 10 frames. And you would okay. have uh, two boxes for bees. So you'd have 20 frames inside of that box. Okay. And so when they're looking at eight frame or better, and it's subjective, okay, um, but when they pop the lid and take a look at everything, they want to see basically half of the, of the 20 frames. They want, uh, they want the majority of them, uh, half of them full of bees, okay. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it, uh, they know already that when the bee count is up, when there's a very strong colony, they can get a lot of pollination done. If there's only two frames or three mm-hmm. frames or five mm-hmm. frames, they now have uh, infrared cameras and they actually go out and they start taking pictures and they will note um, how cold it is outside, they'll take a picture, and from that picture uh, in the infrared, they can actually figure out how, how strong that cluster is, how, how well they're doing, oh, right? Okay. So Which that is, way they can figure helpful. out, you know, because what's, almonds, what they're paying for. Like, not like most other crops, almonds, whatever is pollinated will nut up and be and, and can be, you know, with apples, you're going to yeah. You're call, you want the king gonna, bud on yeah, apples to, yeah. to pollinate and everything else you don't care about because you're going to call it all off. But not with almonds. With almonds, you want every flower to get a nut because you're looking for as heavy many crops. almonds as you can yeah. on that tree. Okay. And yeah, for the almond farmers themselves, they'll have a heavy year and then a lighter year and then a heavy year and a lighter year. So depending on which year that they're looking at, you know, they'll they'll know if they're going to get a heavier, lighter year depending on what what they got the year before. And then with almonds, they only get about a twenty. Uh, to 25 year run, and then they have to tear the trees out and re and regrow the trees. So well, it's not yeah yeah. And I was kind of wondering about that um, with when it comes to like crop rotation things like that. Um, I know a lot of agriculture, you know, mm-hmm. commercial agriculture mm-hmm. doesn't do that. Um, but how is the ground sustaining everything for these? You know, if they're if that's mm-hmm. the that's not that large of an area to just be the sole producer of like one crop. Well, How does yeah, that continue to... and and yet you know when you're looking at such intense farming inside of California, um, you know, there's been a lot of people that tore out grapes, they've torn out lots of different things, and they planted almonds 
uh, because they're such a cash crop. And I will tell you that all nut crops, and it doesn't matter if it's uh, walnuts, if it's pistachios, if it's pecans, all of them are getting very large, large dollars okay. for their crops. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of the farmers have gone to walnuts because the trees will live a lot longer. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't, they need, don't bees. need bees. You know, oh, they okay. don't need, yeah, there's a, and, and they get pretty, they get very close to the same amount of money. Uh, and the same scenario where whatever they don't sell, China will pick up. They, you know, China consumes a lot of, and even though China has a lot of walnut trees in their country, because yeah. they can grow that, right? right? They consume everything they have and everything else everybody else can get, yeah. right, when it comes to that. So, wow. Yeah. So uh, then the other thing is I've heard a lot about um, – I've been listening to uh, – do you guys know Joe Salatin, the poly uh, – I've heard his name, and I think I've read some stuff. But okay. Yeah. Well, he, I was just listening to him on a podcast, but he was talking about uh, that it has – a lot of it has to do with the carbon in the ground and replenishing that carbon. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the issues that they're finding, uh, like with the forest fires, everything like that, um, has to do with if the, carb if the ground isn't being re-energized with new carbon and that being replenished, um, not only does the, you know, the crop health, the topsoil disappear, all of those things, yes. but also he said that yes. if there's not sufficient carbon, like so, uh, mm -hmm. an acre of sufficiently carbonated ground can hold like some ridiculous amount more gallons of water per square acre than mm -hmm. acre than acreage that doesn't mm -hmm. have sufficient carbon. Right. And when you do these commercialized farms, you end up getting this de you decarbonate mm -hmm. the ground, and you have that issue. Um, yeah, and it has to do a lot with just this when you're talking about soil health. If you are tilling things and spraying things and doing a bunch of things to it, you're basically killing that ground. You know, you're basically, you're not wanting to do that. You want to do sheet mulching and you want to not till the soil. You want, you yeah. want a lot of uh, biologic activity inside of that soil, right? right. And that's been a huge um, fight with the farmers. And they've actually known that since the 20s and the 30s. They actually were looking at it... Um, and knowing that they were depleting the soil by constantly growing crops, the crops would take things out right. and they weren't putting anything back, yeah. right? So I, and I, so I, originally they would, they thought, well, we'll just dump fertilizer on it. We'll just dump, you know, we'll just dump as much stuff on there ah. as possible, till it all up and dump <laughs> it in. And, you know, over that's the years smart. they've figured out, no, that's not, that's not actually. Now uh, we haven't been down through the Central Valley in a few years, but um, for many, and California has been one of them, and I just saw a research study out of UC Davis um, in one of the Bee magazines. Um, what they did is they said, no, you're, you need to plant rows in between, you know, the almonds or whatever. And so a lot of times you'll see, well, they'll plant some old and they'll just turn it under, right? And I think that's the purpose. They're trying to keep the soil. Yeah. Then they said, well, you need to plant things for pollinators. But what the study found was, and they were a little concerned, is bees like variety, like you and I. Right. So when they're in a you know, if they're just in acres of almonds, that's the only pollen they're getting. Right. So they've planted all this acreage around, and they're not, the bees are like, oh, I, I'm going to go over there today. Maybe not hit the almonds as much as they right. wanted to, right? Because now they have a variety of things, and they want to be at the salad bar today instead of yeah. the taco, you right. know, And one of the other and, problems, when I first got into beekeeping uh, back in the early 90s, uh, it was only $25 to rent a box of bees. Right. So mm -hmm. so the farmers, what they would do is they would they would rent three or four times the amount of bees that they need. Mm -hmm. They'd spend 100 bucks, get four yeah. hives per acre. They yeah. didn't care. 
when things started to get expensive, and what was interesting was in the early 90s, uh, it went uh, from just a few, like 100,000 acres, went to like 300,000 acres, and it was it was looking like it was going to turn into 600,000 acres mm -hmm. very quickly because all these all these guys were planting almonds, and so here they are, they're in the mm -hmm. ground, they're coming along, but it takes seven years between planting an almond and actually getting your first crop, you wow. know, and then from mm -hmm. there you you go on and, and make things happen. And uh, so I looked at it when I was a young guy, and I I told all these beekeepers, I said, hey, you know, they're they're going to be paying ridiculous amounts of money for bees. Uh, they'll, they'll give you $100 a box, right? <laughs> All of the old timers laughed at me. Right. And yet just three years later, they were scrambling and they were getting $100 worth of, uh, for their bees. One of the other reasons that drove the price up though, that's when things started to fall apart for beekeepers. So they right. were experiencing problems from Varroa mite and so okay. they were having collapses at the same moment in time that all of these almond farmers are going, hey, we need bees, and they were throwing quite a bit of money uh, on the table at the time. So those two things collided in the center there. And, and, that, I, that and I know they've crested 900,000 acres of almonds in California. I don't know if they hit the million acre okay. mark yet. Yeah. So yeah. that's... That gives you yeah. an idea. And one of the things that have slowed them down was the water problems inside of mm -hmm. California. The droughts yep. have really caused quite a bit of problems for all farming in yes. California. Yeah. So if they hadn't had the drought problem, we easily would have strolled over the million acre mark. But for the older, if they were older trees, they would tear them out. If, the, you know, any, any kind of little problems, they, they would get rid of stuff if there was, uh, you know, because they didn't want to use the water. They didn't want to deal with those things. Right. So, yeah. Right. So then with the... the Bees, you guys were talking about the mites, right? Yes, mm -hmm. the varroa, um, yeah, varroa and when, mite. About when was that? Yeah, in 1990, that's pretty much in the late 80s and the early 90s. By, by 1990 and 92, um, everybody had varroa mite. There was nobody anywhere in this country that didn't have varroa mite. And everybody was suffering from it. Everybody was struggling with it. And everybody was losing bees because of the varroa mite. Okay. Yeah, so... And that's when uh, the Wild Wild West happened, where they were just trying all sorts of different things to try to figure out to, to dump inside of their hives to try to get their bees to survive. Right. Because they were looking for that $100 bill. Yeah. You know, uh, bees got up to $150 and stayed for $150 for about 15 or 20 years. And then just recently, in the last four or five years, mm -hmm. it's bounced from $150 up to the $200 mark. Oh. Because, you know, once again, they... They need more and more bees, and they don't have it. They ship bees from every state in the country to California to be able to, to, to get enough bees inside of the state. So okay. it's, it's crazy. They, it's something like uh, 75 or 80% of all managed mm -hmm. hives go to California February 1st. The, the, everybody's in there. Okay. And that's part of the problem for bees. They commingle all those bees in a very small spot. Everybody commingles all their sick bees with their healthy bees, ah. and then they all go back home respectfully. Right. So it doesn't take very long before if somebody had a problem in Florida, and that's where they think that the varroa mite first showed up. And then they all showed up. Uh, yeah, once they, yeah, the yeah, within yes, just a yeah. few years, everybody, everybody got a dose of all that, yes. Wow. So, and that's how things spread in the bee world. Yep. You know, when you're having... Um, you would never do that with mite, cattle, for varroa example. Mite, uh, foul brood, uh, nosema, any of those things that you're normally dealing with, 
yeah, everybody brings things in, they put them in holding yards, they spread them all around, and then they go back home again, and everybody has that problem within two years. Wherever the problem is, it's all over the place in a very short amount of time. Wow. So, yeah. Okay, so I didn't realize that with, with that. And then you were mentioning um, the fact that it's winter, and they're trying to get that those eight racks. Mm -hmm. eight yeah, frames. eight frames. frames yeah, yeah. Um, and you're saying, but it's winter time. What? Mm -hmm. How does that coincide? Well, I mean, what? okay, so what happens on that piece there is that um, bees are one of the few things, when you're looking at uh, a hive, honeybees are the only ones that actually keep the hive alive um, 12 months out of the year. Okay. If you were looking at a bumblebee or a wasp or a hornet, you know, they create their hives, and during the summertime, they have a lot of bees. Towards the end of fall, they have lots and lots of bees. But then they create their queens, and then everything dies. The queen lives. The queen right. goes and hibernates, hibernates yeah. and then remakes a new hive every year. When it comes to honeybees, though, no. They'll go uh, in the wintertime. They'll want to get down to, say, anywhere from two or 3,000 in a hive up to say 12,000, somewhere in there. And then in the summertime, they wanna be 40,000, 60,000, 80,000 in a hive. And the queen, right? what so they, they do is the queen doesn't lay in the winter. Right. So that they, they, oh. they like hibernate. And so okay. basically the worker bee's function is to keep her, to keep the hive warm, to keep her fed, keep moisture, keep Correct. everything, just to get her till next spring. Got it. So okay. if you want to have all these bees in the box, then you have to stimulate the bees for them to think, oh, there's food out there. So you have to feed them food like it's spring. Yeah. And so typically speaking, so normally laying. a hive would have between two frames to four frames worth of bees without any stimulation mm -hmm. at all. Okay. But if you're going to sugar feed them, and especially mm -hmm. at, uh, they like Italian bees because they're easy to trick with sugar water, um, you start putting sugar water to them in November and December and January, okay. right? When you start feeding mm -hmm. them, then all of a sudden they'll think, oh, spring is coming and they'll expand them out and then they can get six frame, eight frame, 10 frame, 12 frame, or, you know, that kind of mm -hmm. scenario because they've gotten those bees to go ahead and rev up, yep. right? It's very hard up here because you're, you're dumping sugar water yeah. at a very cold time and the bees, you're force feeding the bees to be able to get them to, right. to, to make bees when they shouldn't normally be making them. Right. So, and so you're pressing on them harder. Yeah. So. so then with the, you said they were bringing in bees from all over the country, but mm -hmm. did you say they also bring them from out of country as well? No, they can't they bring them out of country. Don't. Yeah, they, they want, want to. to. There's, yeah. That's a big, that's a big thing right now. They realize okay. that as they move forward, how are we going to have enough bees? And so um, now I think they were bringing, bringing bees from Australia uh, Hawaii. Well, they, were bringing, they were bringing in packages. Is what packages. They were doing. And yeah. Hawaii, that's true, not for pollination, but Hawaii didn't have mites till we went to the conference in 2011, yes. I think. And, and they, they had just gotten mites like in 2008. Yeah. Wow. Um, because yeah. they were so isolated and they were like, no, don't don't bring anything in and somebody One of the packages they said a couple of packages got broken open and the bees got loose and the the mites mm -hmm. spread really quick through there really, really also quick. hive beetle got there around the same oh, time and hive beetles is something here. we don't have up here per se but in in the united states there's a lot of hive beetles that uh that cause trouble for for the bees and so they certainly like cause a lot of into the hive and uh, attacking or? uh what they yeah what they do is they get inside of the hive and uh they will, um, they pupate outside of the hive. So they'll hop out and they'll go uh, into the soil. Um, and then when they turn into a beetle and then they'll fly and they'll go into another hive, they'll wander around inside of the hive 
and they will lay their eggs inside of the hive, it's and then once slimy. those um, slime out, yeah, they once once the grubs uh, um, hatch, they will literally slime out a hive because there's so many grubs, and the bees will abscond. They will actually leave their home because it's now mm -hmm. a mess oh. that they don't want to deal with. Right. So with. it's and it, what's really hard for a beekeeper is the hive beetles will get inside of the hive. They have hive beetle traps uh, and they're usually a trap that has a little bit of oil inside there. The bees will shove them into corners. And as long as the beekeeper doesn't break apart the hive, mm -hmm. uh, everything's fine. And the bees will actually even feed the beetles and keeping them into one spot. But as a beekeeper, you open everything up and you lift open mm -hmm. and you start checking your hive. It gets all the beetles loose. They lay all of their eggs inside there, and within a week, you've been slimed out, and it's all done, right? We saw so that in Hawaii, tough. and it yeah, was just like, Yeah, we saw it in Hawaii. Whoa. Yeah, quite, a, quite a tough thing. But yeah. in the Midwest, it's a problem. In, in Florida, it's a problem. You know, there's different places where it's a problem. Yeah. It's not a problem up here. Okay. That's, yeah, that's one, that's one of the few For things now. we don't have, you know, really. <laughs> yeah, so. Well, sorry to cut that off abruptly, but to find out what happens next, you'll have to come back next week. Um, thank you guys for listening and for more information on things talked about in this episode, you can go to commandocommons.com slash EP63. That's commandocommons.com slash EP63. Thanks for listening and see you next week.